The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And we also have this open question about whether communicating with members of the public and members of the executive branch, so outside of Congress, renders those communications no longer privileged. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 28th, 2023. Yes, there was a big showdown at the D.C. Circuit last week over the speech or debate clause, and no, it had nothing to do with Mike Pence. But it may have everything to do with Mike Pence. It had to do with Representative Scott Perry and his cell phone, the latter of which was seized by the FBI in connection with the January 6th investigation. Representative Perry wants it back and he sure doesn't want anything on it used in the investigation. And he went to Chief Judge Beryl Howell of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia and moved to quash the order for his phone The judge said no, and the D.C. Circuit held arguments last week, and there's been a mess of stuff unsealed all of a sudden, so we got together in the virtual jungle studio to discuss it all. Quinta Jurassic and Scott Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editors, and Dominic Solari, our student contributor who wrote a terrific oral argument preview and summary of the case. It's about time we had some good grand jury investigation litigation in the D.C. Circuit. We haven't had that since the Mueller investigation, at least not that Lawfare listeners would care about. So I'm super pumped. It's the Lawfare podcast, February 28th. What's going on with Scott Perry's cell phone? All right, Quinta, get us started here and give us a little overview of how we got to uh, yesterday's panel argument. Uh, We weren't talking about this a few weeks ago, and all of a sudden, we got Scott Perry's cell phone before the D.C. Circuit. Who is Scott Perry, and why does special counsel, the wizard himself, Jack Smith, care about him? Absolutely. So... Scott Perry is a Republican representative uh, from Pennsylvania. He was very involved in efforts to overturn the 2020 election and was kind of an early adopter of Trump's rhetoric that the 2020 election had been stolen. 
He also pops up a lot in the January 6th committee's investigation and report. Viewers of the hearings will remember that there is a, a hearing that had to do with Trump's effort to install as Attorney General uh, Jeffrey Clark, a DOJ official who had been pushing for the department to sort of involve itself in state-level efforts to overturn the election or somehow cast out on uh, the vote count. Perry, according to the January 6th committee, introduced Clark to Trump. And so in that sense, he was sort of a crucial link between the two and, and created, in a way, this whole very dramatic spiral where Clark essentially tried to usurp the entire Justice Department and turn it to Trump's whims. That's what we know about. He also was, you know, very much out there uh, talking to the White House, encouraging them to try to overturn the election in in other capacities. And I believe he was one of the representatives who uh, reached out to Trump asking for a pardon after January 6th, Uh, although I don't think we know what exactly he wanted a pardon for. In August uh, of this last year, uh, he announced that the FBI had seized his phone and thus began uh, the the journey to today. So we knew that he was battling in the courts to try to keep the material on the phone out of the government's hands. We didn't know much about it because it was a grand jury matter. A lot of it, almost all of it, was under seal. Recently, we did learn that there was going to be a D.C. Circuit oral argument about that, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about. That oral argument then led uh, Chief Judge Beryl Howell of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia to unseal a number of her opinions and orders in the case from the uh, fall and winter. So sort of as a result of really in the last you know couple weeks, we suddenly have a huge amount more uh, information about this case that's kind of been percolating beneath the surface for quite a while. All right. So, Dominic, give us a little overview of the Judge Howell rulings and uh, what she said and what specifically was before the D.C. Circuit last week. Absolutely. So Judge Howell uh, was dealing in fall and in winter with Representative Perry's legal team basically saying that his records were protected and that the FBI should not have access to records on his cell phone. We now know from the unsealed rulings that he was specifically contesting around 2,200 records on his cell phone. And to be clear, do we know what kind of records are these text messages? Are they call metadata? Are they voicemails? Do we know what kind of information they're contesting? We don't. They're only referred to as records, sometimes communications, but we don't know exactly what we're talking about. We do know, broadly speaking, the types of individuals who the records are in communication with, or the records of communications with whom I guess we're talking. So we know we're dealing with private individuals, state representatives, congressional staff, other members of Congress, and uh, members of a presidential campaign, so most likely the Trump campaign. Basically, Judge Howell was asked to evaluate whether those 2,200 records were subject to the privilege of the speech and debate clause, and specifically whether they were protected by the non-disclosure privilege, which allows a representative to prevent the disclosure of those records to the executive branch. Even a clean team wouldn't be sufficient. It has to be completely protected. So the 
government hasn't yet seen these records. And she ruled that... And uh, Judge Howell ruled that 161 of the records were protected by the speech and debate privilege, and the other over 2,000 records had to be turned over. The questions that were then certified to the D.C. Circuit, of which there are three, also give us a sense of where the real contest is here. And one of those areas which Judge Howell opined on was that a lot of these pertain to so-called informal investigative fact-finding. So we know that Perry argued to Judge Howell that he was doing informal investigative fact-finding relevant to his legislating, and that's why the records are protected. And we know that Judge Howell rejected that argument and said very categorically that any fact-finding done by a member of Congress that has not been officially authorized by a committee, subcommittee in Congress, or Congress itself, is not protected. That's one of the questions that it then went to the D.C. Circuit. And we also have this open question about whether communicating with members of the public and members of the executive branch, so outside of Congress, renders those communications no longer privileged. We know that Judge Howell also finds that that means they're no longer privileged, and this question also went to the D.C. Circuit. So, Scott, give us a little sense of the background law here, which is a matter that, you know, Quinta and Messrs. Stern and Columbus and uh, Molly Reynolds went into in some detail the other day on the podcast, and I refer refer you guys to that. But the the speech and or debate clause is less of a privilege than an immunity as a general matter. What is the the basic contours of the doctrine here? in in high-level summary terms? Sure. You, you know, the speech or debate clause is rooted in a clause of the Constitution that, uh, paraphrasing, uh, I don't have the text right in front of me, but essentially says that members of Congress, senators, House representatives shouldn't be questioned for things they say on the floor of the Congress. While the language is fairly constrained in the Constitution, it has long been interpreted by the court fairly broadly in line with kind of the broader, a broader structural view of the separation of powers as helping to insulate the legislative branch from a variety of means of executive branch or judicial harassment. Often that's meant protection from prosecution, protection from um, certain types of disclosure, particularly in the DC circuit. There's been a much more focus on disclosure in its case law around this, a little bit more than the Supreme Court. That's something Judge Howell really points to and says, I'm kind of bound by this, even though she kind of suggests maybe she thinks it goes a little bit far. But this idea that a lot of the work of Congress and members of Congress and staff of Congress, importantly, this has been expanded to include staff of Congress, where it relates to core functions of Congress, meaning kind of constitutionally assigned duties, whether those are legislative or whether they are, as in this case, a a legislative, but not in the context of writing legislation. Here, we're talking about voting on elector slates of elector electoral votes cast by electors. Some that is constitutionally assigned to members of Congress, and so that is a function that's actually not disputed by other parties. Here is that the basic idea of there being an underlying legislative function is definitely clear here. The real question that I think Judge Howell is wrestling with, DC Circuit is, or wrestled with, and DC Circuit will now wrestle with, is this question of well, how broad is that idea of both a legislative function, the activities that can go into it, and who can do those activities? 
you know, obviously members of Congress aren't bound really in what they can legislate with. And I think the we hear Representative Perry and his lawyers lean very heavily into that. They are claiming a very, very broad, I would argue, prophylactic is a term we hear a lot in the executive privilege context, but I think it's a fair way to describe it here, but a prophylactic scope of speech and debate precisely to say, well, look, the whole idea here is that members of Congress are supposed to be able to do their jobs as a congressman to figure out what you're supposed to legislate about or how you're supposed to exercise your other responsibilities. You have to do some fact-finding, investigation, and gathering information, and that should be given its broadest possible scope. And we should resist efforts by the executive branch to interfere or to intimidate members of Congress when they're acting within that scope, which is you know, more or less what they're saying is happening here or has the risk of happening here. But Judge Howell, uh, the government, although along kind of different lines, and maybe the DC Circuit, certainly in questioning, they raised the possibility, pointed out that this can't be all-encompassing. There's lots of case law that points out that political activities fall outside the scope of this. Things that relate to personal obligations fall outside the scope of this. Um, There's an idea that things that are kind of adjuncts to legislative functions but not directly related to them kind of fall out of this, uh, the scope of these sorts of protections. And so they're saying, well, what is it that Perry's doing here and where does it fit within all of this? And it's particularly complicated because we as outside observers don't know what Perry did. Um, The language in the uh, Howell opinions that lays out the substance of what's being discussed is blacked out. So we're left guessing a little bit. I I think we can draw some informed guesses (laughs) about some of it a little bit. Like certainly some of it, she's very clear, this relates to, you know, committee assignments, or this relates to specifically the mechanism of voting on, you know, electoral count slates. But other parts of it are much more ambiguous. And so particularly because this is kind of a fact contingent inquiry, how related are these particular communications that are at the at the or that are the subject of this debate, how closely are related to a particular um, incident, there's inevitably a, a, a fairly thick veil of ignorance, knowing exactly where they're drawing the line until we see some sort of opinion on it, essentially. So, Quinta, one of the things that we know that Representative Perry was involved in was trying to get the leadership of the Justice Department ousted and replaced with the estimable Jeffrey Clark, my, my occasional Twitter correspondent, although he's blocked me recently, which hurt my feelings. That does not seem like in any sense legislative activity. It seems rather like lobbying the executive branch on appointments matters. Do you have a sense, Do we or do we have any sense of what the range of issues that the uh, special counsel wants from this phone Because it seems to me like a lot of what they're interested in with Perry is not his legislative work, but his leaning on state officials, his leaning on potential uh, state-level electors, and his uh, leaning on federal officials. Is there a simple line to be drawn between his congressional activity and his activity basically as a as a election agitator? So so we do know that Judge Howell also was not enthusiastic um, about Perry's argument that the speech or debate clause protected the government from accessing his communications with members of the executive branch. We know that because uh, there's a, a paragraph in Howell's ruling where she essentially says, look, 
the whole point of the speech or debate clause is to shield Congress from executive interference. You don't get to invoke that protection when the material at issue is your communications with people in the executive branch under a different administration, but still the same executive branch. And so she does not buy that at all. So again, her her order uh, handing this over has been stayed by the circuit court, but she did seem to think, you know, no, the special counsel should have access to that material. We also know outside uh, Perry's conversations with um, members of Congress and staff that he he engaged in uh, what Judge Howell refers to as anti-quote random musings with private individuals touting an expertise in cybersecurity or political discussions with attorneys from a presidential campaign. So Dominic mentioned that earlier, or with state legislators concerning hearings before them about possible local election fraud. So I think that unredacted section gives us a bit of a sense of the the scope um, of material under consideration here. And the fact that we know that Perry was apparently communicating with people about, you know, supposed cybersecurity issues and issues with the vote count suggests to me that I could see how the special counsel might potentially have interest in seeing, you know, if Perry is a funnel of information from, you know, folks who are engaging in this kind of stuff at the state level, conspiracy theorists, et cetera, to the White House, because we know he was communicating with President Trump and with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, that there could be interest in the special counsel's part of seeing, you know, what information kind of transited through Perry to the White House and perhaps from the White House. Um, And Howell seemed pretty sure (laughs) that that material is not covered by speech or debate. Um, So I think that that's that's all struck me as very much within both, you know, in the the Venn diagram of stuff that's within the scope of Smith's investigation and stuff that is not protected by speech or debate. All right. So, Dominic, the D.C. Circuit is presented with three overlapping questions. What are they? So the three questions that go to the D.C. Circuit are first, whether the D.C. Circuit even has jurisdiction to hear the case. And we don't get oral arguments on this point, but we understand from the specific statute that the court cites in its order certifying the question that it has to do with whether the district court, whether Judge Hell's ruling was a final order that the D.C. Circuit can hear. The second question that comes to the D.C. Circuit is whether this so-called investigative fact-finding counts as legislative activity when it hasn't been formally authorized by a subcomponent of Congress, like a committee. Before you get to the third, so that's basically like a member of Congress informally chatting with somebody and saying that this is fact-gathering for purposes of potential legislation, which is in some circumstances completely plausible and in other circumstances seems like it's you know it has it's a rule that would sort of swallow everything they do since they're legislators and almost anything can be theoretically the subject of of legislation right i think that you do see a concern from the judges about how far this could sweep but the distinction that perry's counsel is trying to draw is that any topic about which legislation could be had, and that's the language that comes up again and again, legislation could be had, is a bit more narrow than any conversation with any constituent, for example. But Rowley, who's the attorney for Perry uh, before the D.C. Circuit, 
has an example about a congressman going to East Palestine to try to investigate what's going on there and is sort of talking to people to figure out, I guess, if they have health repercussions. And Rowley makes the argument that that is protected. So that does encompass a lot. Just one addition to this, Dominic, just to flag, is that part of this prompt, the part that emphasizes the in the absence of official authorization, is really a direct response to how Howell tried to carve out this rule. Because she really leaned very heavily on a D.C. Circuit president called McShirley, I think it's pronounced McShirley v. McClellan, where she said essentially D.C. Circuit precedent says for this these sorts of fact-finding investigations to be within the scope of the privilege, they have to be authorized by some sort of body. Uh, and that's a big part of it seems, although again, it's hard to tell 100% with all the blackouts, it seems like that's a big part of the reason why she thinks a lot of these things fall out. But that kind of pushes the other way. You know, my suspicion is that, you know, you might have some people concerned that that is too narrow uh, a scope, just as they may be worried Perry's is too broad a scope, because that would cut out a lot of things that members could do of their own initiative without approval of, you know, elements of the broader legislature, whether a committee, a chamber, or a subcommittee. And I think Judge Rao does pick up on, or has sort of bought uh, Judge Howell's framing of that test, because one of uh, her questions to Perry's attorneys is explicitly, there is no case law which says that in the absence of congressional authorization, this counts as legislative activity, and really asks him about that, and he has to defend that. So that's sort of accepting, in my perception, the framing of the test there, that you need some kind of authorization. Okay, and so what's the third question? So the third question is whether the privilege extends to communications that are occurring between the members of Congress and people outside of Congress. And the question itself says either private parties or people in the executive branch. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten 
and another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so Scott, you are a former D.C. Circuit clerk. Let's talk about this panel. The en banc D.C. Circuit now is pretty solidly a left-of-center cord in the crude uh, left-right way that we talk about judges. Uh, this panel is like a kind of dream selection uh, randomly for a conservative litigant, but I'm not sure what that means in this context. Does it mean that, you know, this is a Republican congressman who's fighting the you know, the latest iteration of the witch hunt, and so he can expect a uh, sympathetic hearing? Or does it mean, you know, these are judges who would 
typically be uh, enthusiastic about executive power and therefore would not necessarily be interested in a, the broadest possible interpretation of the speech or debate clause. How do you assess the composition of this panel in relation to uh, the question that was presented them or the questions that are presented to them? Yeah, it is a really interesting panel <laughs> for the DC Circuit. I would I would contest maybe the idea that DC Circuit is left of center because uh, it's certainly majority Democratic appointee uh, of the existing en banc court. Um, they tend to be more conservative judges from kind of the Democratic ecosystem on the DC Circuit because a lot of ex government lawyers and kind of institutionalists. So it's it, it's useful more to think about on partisan lines than than ideological lines. I think that said, you know the. The key point here really is that these are three judges that are Republican appointees, two by former President Trump, who has you know a vested interest in the outcome of this. Uh, Judge Henderson is one of the longest standing. I think she's still active. I do not believe she's taken senior status, and I think that makes her the most senior judge who's not a senior judge, the most the most experienced judge who is still a full active duty judge uh, on the D.C. Circuit now, um, and has been by by a substantial margin, uh, as I recall. But but they come at this from kind of different angles. Um, judge Katzis is somebody who's in private practice for a long time, has other government roles, but most most recently before getting nominated to the court, President Trump's White House counsel. He was not the White House counsel. He was the deputy White House counsel. Yes, correct. Sorry, yeah. in the White House counsel's office. And just for those who, for whom that is, you know, all kinds of red flags. Greg Katzis is a superb lawyer. Uh, he was the head of the civil division at Justice. He was previously, I believe, a D.C. Circuit nominee as well. Or and This is uh, a very, very serious uh, individual. And I would second that. I mean, I think Katzis has on this court been shown to be like a very serious judge. I don't think he's, you know, been outside a spectrum of, of a partisan perspective. Certainly, maybe he's got, he's sensitive to the sensitivities of the Trump administration and other folks. He actually recused himself from a lot of high profile cases involving the Trump administration because of his role as White House counsel, which I think is a very reasonable, appropriate thing for him to do as a judge. I thought his questioning on this was was useful. Um, so I wouldn't assume just because he's a Trump appointee, some people will be inclined to say, oh, he's just going to be in Perry's corner. I think that's not true of Judge Katzis. Judge Rao is somebody who is not afraid of taking unorthodox perspectives. Um, she's got this reputation. I don't think it's always entirely fair, but it's certainly there uh, that she writes things that kind of throw some red meat uh, to particularly kind of conservative viewers because she's interested in maybe going to Supreme Court one day. And she certainly does takes a lot of views and writes a lot of opinions that get reversed or writes a lot of dissents that don't get taken up by the panel and have this kind of like, you know, little bit more of a uh, norm breaker perspective of a lot of things on the court. And that was her kind of reputation going into the court as well, although she hasn't backed down a lot. Karen Henderson, very old school, conservative, fairly conservative judge, uh, I would say by, by most standards, but still an institutionalist, like somebody who's kind of been on the DC circuit for a long time, certainly has been on several opinions that, you know, the government is one. I don't think she, I don't think it would be fair to call her any sort of, you know, uh, somebody who's presumptively in Perry's corner, just because some association with Donald Trump or something on those lines. I don't think that would be doing credit to her, but she certainly is of a conservative ilk and sees things from the perspective of a more conservative judiciary and conservative legal movement, really kind of like of 10 or 20 years ago. You really saw this, I think, most relevantly here in the McGahn litigation, where she was on the panel that 
actually signed off on these opinions that were later reversed by the Antbank that basically viewed this very, very kind of brutal, in my mind, vision of the separation of powers, where, where she said basically, hey, I don't think we should, we, the courts, should be in the middle of these congressional executive fights at all. Now, that the situation was flipped. That was Congress trying to get information from the executive, right? But the whole point of that, that she was saying, is that we got to let the political branches fight it out. We shouldn't be sticking our noses into this. And that kind of is an interesting prior, I think, when she's wrestling with this particular set of cases. Now, the Ambank DC Circuit reversed her twice on that. And so one on a statutory issue that's unrelated, but has a similar sort of motivation. So I think she's understands she has to stick with what the Ambank DC Circuit has said. And I'm not sure it's directly applicable here, but it certainly is an interesting philosophical point from her perspective, which is that she seems skeptical of really having the courts intervene and resolving these big separation of powers disputes, or perhaps more relevantly here, may be hesitant to embrace highly fact-specific distinctions that will invite a judicial role. Yeah. So before we go any further, I also think it's it's worth flagging that there's not an easy partisan breakdown in terms of how Congress is thinking about this either. And what I mean by that is that the bipartisan legal advisory group, which is a a body of senior House leadership, as Dominic writes in his piece, that is, it's in the name, bipartisan, um, voted unanimously uh, to intervene the filing itself is is sealed, um, but I, I do think that that's maybe a, an indication that this is not a clear, you know, Democrat versus Republican split when it comes to the House's view. One, one, two things to note, I guess. One is the bipartisan legal advisory group is a really interesting body. It, it's worth noting it is, despite its name, a majority control body. So this is something that if Kevin McCarthy wanted to get Republicans to intervene on their own on a particular perspective or particular issue set, he could. Um, it is a five-member body of which three are controlled by the majority. So, And it's a majority rule. So they could intervene that way. So the fact that they did it unanimously does suggest there's some common ground here. We saw the Blag authorize a lot of the litigation in the Trump administration era by the democratically-led House on that three-to-five margin. So there's no reason McCarthy et al. are going to be shy about using that if they want to. Also, some of the reporting around this was really was interesting. CNN, at least, described this filing as primarily be a, being about unsealing the record. That could have been a garble. I didn't see the same thing in Politico reporting or other reporting on this, but it's possible that the unified position might be something more technical like that, like a pro-transparency measure, and that you won't see the same un- unanimity when you're you know, going in and actually intervening. We don't even know the extent to which the, ha- the full house has availability to these re- of these records to know how they would want to intervene. Presumably, Representative Perry probably want- can share it with the majority if he wants to, but you know they may not know exactly where the court fell on this to know how they want to intervene. It might just be about them wanting to get access to the docket so they can weigh in more effectively. Um, so I so I don't I both think it's a notable factor, a hundred percent. We also should be a little careful about drawing too many conclusions from it substantively because we don't know how substantively the unified position actually is. Yeah. All that said, I do think I do think the point that it is not obvious what the meaning, partly because Rao is so eccentric uh, as a judge, and uh, because Katsas is such a, I, I mean, is actually a DC Circuit institutionalist as well as being a conservative. It's not obvious to me at all what the you know what the consequences of of uh, this out potentially outlying a panel it is. 
And people should remember as well that this is a situation where in the event of an adverse ruling for the special counsel, uh, he has access potentially to the Unbank DC circuit, which is a, a much more much more dominated by Democratic appointees. All right. So with all that as a big windup, Dominic, give us a summary of the argument. Who seemed sympathetic to uh, Congressman Perry? Who seemed in the tank for the special counsel? And how uh, do you think Judge Howell's opinion is likely to fare when they when they rule? So the first thing to say is that we can speculate about Judges Rao and Katzis, but we don't know about Judge Henderson because Judge Henderson did not ask any questions during oral arguments to either either party. And her audio got cut, cut off. And right? her audio got cut off along with uh, the public's access who were not there at the time. So whether she was not asking questions because she was not in the room, she was listening remotely, or because she was intentionally withholding questions, we don't know. But with that said, we have questions from Rao and Katzis for both attorneys. So Mr. Rowley for uh, Representative Perry is the first one to argue. And I would say his questioning from Judge Katzis is a lot more sympathetic, more speculative. We get these sort of remarks like, this just seems odd that a privilege would be extending to seemingly anyone in the world. And we get a comment that we know that this privilege is broad, but this does seem a little strange, right? Can you talk about that more with roughly the tone that I'm using? So a little more sympathetic from Judge Katzis. Um, Judge Rao, on the other hand, does seem to have some real concerns with Perry's argument. There was the question I mentioned earlier about really buying into Judge Howell's test of requiring official authorization and saying, are there any cases that support this? She says that there are no cases and Rowley for Perry pushes back on that and says there's one potentially referring to Senator Graham's testimony in the Georgia Fulton County litigation. And she also expresses concern with the sort of legislative test that Perry's lawyers are trying to draw, which she seems to understand, or at least her questions seem to understand as inquiring into the purpose of a legislator's intent, which she believes to be firmly against the weight of the Supreme Court's case law on the matter and seems very inclined to reject any analysis into the purpose or the mindset of the member of Congress. And then Mr. Palatieri, who's the Justice Department's lawyer, I think fielded some more, not uh, hostile, but combative questions or more critical questions from Judge Katzis. They, uh, for example, disagreed about whether Perry is holding out his phone to the public, meaning whether it is essentially a public communication system or whether it is still a private device. And um, they disagree about things of that nature. And we also see Pelletieri trying to draw sort of a broader, trying to create a broader argument about the speech or debate clause being limited to really the purpose of protecting legislators from kind of a chill and trying to argue that it shouldn't be extended further than necessary and saying that it's already been pretty drawn out and it would go against the purpose of the act in order to allow any communications with members of the public, such as presumably are at issue here, to be privileged. So I think probably more critical questions for the Justice Department than for Perry, but still criticism, especially from Judge Rao on both sides. 
Scott and Quinta, to the extent you have thoughts about the oral argument, what did you uh, what did you make of it? I agree with what most of what Dominic said. I, I thought it was an interesting oral argument, and I had a little trouble reading exactly where their line of questioning were going. I think both uh, round cats were playing a little bit of both sides and being a little cagey, which is what they're supposed to do. I mean, that's that's good. You know, you're supposed to push both sides. You know, Katz had an interesting moment relating to question three, which is essentially whether you know, members of Congress can waive the non-disclosure element of the privilege, just whether they can be compelled to disclose it, not whether they could be prosecuted or had the immunity aspect of it. This is the part that the DC Circuit takes a broader view of than other courts. Is that whether it could be waived like attorney-client privilege? The government came in and said essentially, look, it works like attorney-client privilege. You keep it within Congress and staff. Yeah, of course, we're not going to go into your internal deliberations. But once you talk to somebody like an executive branch official or an outside person who themselves could be subpoenaed about your conversation, and no one seems to argue that that's a problem, then you are in a zone where you've waived this privilege. Judge Katz has kind of pushed back on this and invoked exception seven of FOIA, interestingly. Um, I think less because it's actually a parallel because it's very different to talk about statutory disclosure law and exemptions to it versus a like constitutional privilege, right? But I think on the central logic is, well, why isn't it what we want to protect not just the actual substance of communications, but the scope of items that con- this member of Congress is investigating. Like the fact that they are looking into these things is the itself substantial and significant. The same way, the fact that we might be investigating someone on a criminal basis itself is protectable under FOIA. So there's, he, I think he may be more sympathetic to that point. That I, I personally, coming into this, thought that that seemed like a pretty straightforward way to to shrink this. But it sounds like he may be more open to that. The other point I'll make is that I, I think for both ju- all three judges, really, they're going to have to confront this McSurley precedent that really Judge Howe leaned really heavily on, and in a way that I think is actually problematic. And this is the big thing that point that comes up with the Graham uh, Georgia grand jury decision, right? That came out of the Eleventh Circuit. In that decision, they accepted that a lot of what Graham did of his own volition, without any sort of congressional authorization, was within the scope of his legislative duties because it related to his congressional duties, right? Even though it's not formally authorized. And Powell reads the D.C. Circuit of having said to McSurley, hey, you actually have to get authorization for these to do this, meaning like a subcommittee or somebody else has to vote it and said, or somehow otherwise have authorized this sort of action. That's a problematic reading, I think, in my mind, because for most individual legislators, it seems self-evident that even if you are going to introduce a piece of legislation that you're the only person who's going to vote for, you can still do that within the scope of your legislative duties. So to say, no, you can't do any of the fact-finding or other sorts of activities that use necessary precedent to effective legislating, I, I think that's kind of a problem. And I'm also not sure it's a good read of McSurley. McSurley was a case about subcommittee staff. And so subcommittee staff very reasonably say you have to authorize something for it to be in the scope of their activity as a subcommittee staff. But when it's member staff, I, I have a trouble buying that. So I'm not sure McSurley does all the work that Judge Howell does on this. And I wouldn't be surprised personally from looking through this if that's an area we see more pushback, even if it wasn't hinted as directly in oral argument. All right, we're going to wrap up, but I want to ask each of you quickly uh, what you're expecting. You know, is this going to, you know, be a major confrontation beyond this panel? Is the panel going to split the baby? Is it going to go to the Supreme Court? Quinta, what are you expecting? 
I have absolutely no idea. It is worth flagging that I believe the Supreme Court declined to take up uh, the Graham case that Scott mentioned. Um, so perhaps the situation here is different enough that they might be interested. Perhaps that speaks to a more general unwillingness to get involved in the speech or debate issues. But that does uh, shade my understanding of where we might be going a little bit. Dominic, what's your sense of where this is all headed? I'm going to pick the split the baby option. I don't think we're in for a dramatic remaking of congressional privilege here. And it's worth noting that Judge Howell herself split the baby in allowing some messages to be saved from executive review. So I think we're going to look at something similar here. Scott? Yeah, I I agree. I split the baby. I suspect you are going to see a DC circuit come out that is more generous to Representative Perry than Judge Howell was, but probably only somewhat, um, and still is very does not embrace the broad view he argues for. And that while I don't think it'll be lawmaking, I actually think they're going to have to clarify how McSurley applies in these sort of scenarios, not least because he's probably not the only representative who may get these sorts of subpoenas as the January 6th investigation proceeds. So that's one sort of legal change that might come out of this. I hate to uh, bore our listeners with agreement, but I actually agree that baby splitting is the way this is going to go. As Dominic points out, Howell herself split the baby um, maybe lopped a leg off the baby for uh, for Perry. I think you can expect the D.C. Circuit to uh, apply the knife in a slightly different place. And the reason for this is that, in fact, the baby should be split on a phone with a body of 2,500 messages or whatever or communications. Some of them are going to be legitimately legislative, uh, however you define legislative, and some of them are going to be purely personal and we know in this case, some of them involve him lobbying other people, which is decidedly not a legislative act. And so the real question is not whether they get the Justice Department gets the material from the phone, but how much of it it gets. Uh, so I agree, baby splitting it is, and uh, whatever happens, we'll chat about it when it does. Scott Anderson, Dominic Solari, Quinta Jurassic, uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this week is me, and that's why this podcast will probably sound terrible, except that it is edited by Jen Patya Howell, who will probably save it. So if the podcast sounds okay, thank Jen. And if it's unsalvageable and it sounds awful and scratches the inside of your ear, don't blame Jen, blame me. You, however, uh, are our publicity department. So please tweet the Lawfare podcast, share the Lawfare podcast, make TikTok videos about the Lawfare podcast, and pin us on Pinterest. We want reels, too. I like reels. Our music is performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.